This episode of Oppo is brought to you by longtime sponsors Endy, the 100% Canadian-made mattress. Since its launch in 2015, Endy has become the leading online sleep brand in Canada. The company is headquartered in Toronto, and its signature product, the Endy mattress, is 100% Canadian-made. For $50 off any Endy mattress, go to endy.ca and use the promo code OPPO. This episode of Oppo is also brought to you by Penguin Random House Canada. June is National Indigenous History Month, and Penguin Random House Canada is celebrating the heritage, diverse culture, and outstanding achievements of First Nations, Inuit, and Métis writers by highlighting the amazing array of audiobooks available by Indigenous authors. A selection of these titles is now available as audiobooks from Penguin Random House Canada, wherever audiobooks are sold. Visit penguinrandomhouse.ca slash indigenousvoices to enter to win a collection of audiobooks and to learn more. From Canada Land, this is Oppo. I'm Justin Ling. And I'm Jen Gerson. On this week's show, Ottawa's two most difficult women come on the show to talk drugs, indigenous rights, and the most dysfunctional workplace in the country. Guess where it is? Last Thursday, we sat down with independent MPs Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott in Ottawa. Well, I was in Ottawa. You were in the big city of Toronto, Jen. Yeah, don't tell anybody that. I don't like to advertise it. Well, you can listen to the whole interview right now. We broke down a lot of their next steps, and you can read about some of the interview at CanadaLandShow.com on the Canada Land website. This episode of Oppo is brought to you by Endy. Endy offers a 100-night free trial with free returns so that you can test your mattress in the comfort of your home instead of a big box showroom floor. So you know what it feels like to sit in bed and watch a RuPaul's Drag Race marathon alone and not have to do it with a bunch of weirdos looking at you in the store. The return process during the 100-night trial is super simple. If you don't absolutely love it, they can come pick it up from you and they'll give you a full refund. There'll be no questions asked. Like, why is there Cheetos dust embedded into the mattress. When mattresses are returned, and luckily that doesn't happen all that often, Andy works with local charities and furniture banks to donate the new and gently used mattresses to Canadians in need. With free shipping to every Canadian province in a box the size of a hockey bag, Endy is Canada's best-selling mattress with the highest rate of customer satisfaction and the lowest rate of returns. Endy also gives customers the opportunity to touch, feel, and try the mattresses that Canadians are falling in love with in select showroom partner locations across the country. Go to endy.ca and use the promo code OPPO for 50 bucks off any Endy mattress. That's endy.ca, promo code OPPO. June is National Indigenous History Month, and Penguin Random House Canada is celebrating the heritage, diverse culture, and outstanding achievements of First Nations, Inuit, and Métis writers by highlighting the amazing array of audiobooks available by Indigenous authors. Among the titles they offer are A Mind Spread Out on the Ground by Alicia Elliott, Starlight by Richard Wagamese, Split Tooth by Tanya Tagak, and Heartberries by Therese Marie Mayette. All of these books are now available as audiobooks from your favorite audio retailer, perfect for listening to on the go. And... Penguin Random House Canada is giving away a collection of audiobooks by Indigenous authors to one lucky winner. Visit penguinrandomhouse.ca slash Indigenous Voices to enter to win. Once again, visit penguinrandomhouse.ca slash Indigenous Voices. So I'm sitting here in Ottawa. Jen is back in the mothership in Toronto. How is the center of the universe, Jen? Oh, I always love returning to this rat cage. It's my favorite place to be. 
Sitting across from me are two politicians who, no matter your political stripe, are probably the two most interesting MPs in the House of Commons right now, Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott. We have the first ever Indigenous Justice Minister and the former Minister of Health, Indigenous Services, and most recently the President of the Treasury Board. Of course, both of you left Cabinet after the SNC-Lavalin affair, and both of you were fired from the Liberal Caucus. Hmm. Thank you for coming on OPPO. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. First question. Which one of you two is the leader of the independent caucus? <laughs> Have you had like a leadership race yet? <laughs> we haven't had a leadership race. We haven't had a conversation about having one, but we're really happy to to work and to collaborate and continue to have discussion about important issues. And I will answer that question by pointing to, and this is not, I'm, I'm not getting paid to pitch Dave Meslin's new book, but if anybody does, hasn't read Dave Meslin's new book, which is called Tear Down, Rebuilding Democracy from the Ground Up, one of the great chapters in that book is about the shape of democracy and the shape of leadership. And I found it fascinating to think about the fact that why do we have to have a single leader? There are parties, uh, there are governments that are led by more than one person in leadership and that we actually need to shake up the system by thinking about the fact that people learn to collaborate and you can have different models for uh, how people work together effectively. Oh, so you read my column in the Globe where I called for exactly you that? Did, I did you actually. Did. Now I'm just remembering that you said the same thing. I'm sorry that I didn't go to you first. <laughs> Justin, I'm, I'm listening to that uh, answer and I'm, I'm marking down Jane, leader of the Independent Caucus. <laughs> Done. Thank you. That was Shame. good. Co-leaders. Co All right. I want to ask a serious question now. So you guys were in this position that very few of us in our audience or that Justin and I can really understand or even really imagine. And certainly Justin nor I will ever be in a position like this in our lives. You both were rookie MPs who came from sort of outside the traditional corridors of power and you wound up with a seat at a cabinet table of a government. These were positions of power, real power, at least on paper. Can you sort of just take me and Justin and our audience inside that room and explain to us what it was actually like to be at that cabinet table? Jane's pointing at me and I'm happy to. <laughs> well, uh, you're right. It was, I mean, for myself, I had back in um, 2014 never been a member of any political party, never thought uh, about being a member of parliament. What brought me into entering into the race? Uh, a lot of reasons, but there were fundamental public policy issues that I wanted to address. And I put my name forward. Uh, we knocked on doors for 15 months in Vancouver, Granville, and fortunate enough to have been elected and then called to be the Minister of Justice and the Attorney General. Extraordinary by any measure. And I was deeply honored to hold that role for as long as I as I did. We met on uh, for everybody on November the 4th when we were we gathered at the Delta Hotel and we got on buses and went to Rideau Hall and we walked and the, the clips show it on television and walked up the street to Rideau Hall and we were sworn in. Some of us knew some of the other ministers, but it was um, exciting to get to know people. There was excitement uh, without you know, talking too much about what is talked about in, in cabinet. There was excitement about the mandate that we were elected on um, to accomplish the things that we had committed to. And for me personally, I really wanted to have discussions about how we could 
do things differently and commit to achieving what we had sought to uh, achieve at the beginning. So there, um, there was a lot of collaboration, a lot of goodwill um, that continued, but that wasn't necessarily always the case. There, there is sometimes vigorous discussion around the cabinet table and any table when you're having serious discussions about issues and people don't necessarily always agree. So it was different depending on the time throughout our mandate as a government, at least as long as I was sitting around the cabinet table. Well, I remember being there at uh, Rideau Hall, the, you know, the day the cabinet was sworn in, and and you know, the prime minister made a particular point of saying, you know, this is the most diverse, talented, extraordinary cabinet you can ever imagine. And, and his whole shtick was saying, you know, I've put people of diverse backgrounds with diverse experiences into these roles, and they're going to do better than you know just having kind of the traditional dude cabinet. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Jane, was that your experience? And, and part of the, the concept behind that was that having people who knew what they were doing, people with real experience in the roles that they were going into, were going to speak louder and carry kind of a more weight than in traditional cabinet prime minister relationship. Is that what happened? I would say it did to a certain extent. And, you know, if I can go back to, you know, Jen's comment, I wanted to first of all say that she said that neither she nor you, Justin, will in that position oh and God, I would I beg to differ because <laughs> oh God, no, that you're be, no, without wanting to you know look like I'm sycophant here but you're both very smart people and you're the kind of people that actually should be around the cabinet table so well, no, no I mean maybe maybe me but definitely not Justin um, <laughs> <laughs> okay Jen I'll vote for you then uh, anyway so I think it's great when people from diverse backgrounds smart people with life experience uh, get around into those kind of positions and I have to say I love it. I mean, I was able to accomplish things that really mattered to me and I think really mattered to Canadians and, you know, particularly in, in the portfolios that I was in the longest as both Minister of Health and the Minister of Indigenous Services, there were some files that were deeply important to me where, to your point, Justin, I was able to take what I knew about, you know, drug policy or pharmaceutical pricing or, you know, primary care and actually skip past all the intro that my officials would have normally done for a minister who didn't understand what, you know, how tuberculosis is spread, for example. You know, they just, the slide decks were cut in half because I could actually get the stuff, push in the right direction. And it, it was an amazing opportunity. So I have to ask this, was there a point at which that goodwill, that excitement, that collaboration shifted to something else? And if there was a point, what was it? Well, I mean, it's at the beginning, and, and this is where uh, Jane and I had, I think, the great fortune of, of working together on a really complicated and deeply emotional file that required a huge amount of collaboration, and that was medical assistance in dying. We were tasked with doing that um, according to a deadline of the Supreme Court, and we embraced that task. There was a lot of collaboration, a lot of discussion. I believe the prime minister has even spoken about this around the cabinet table where people got engaged in, and reflected on what was the best approach. I would say uh, over the course of three years that, that I was there, ministers got engrossed as they should in their files, in their mandate letters. Time being what it is goes by quickly and people want to accomplish um, what they have been tasked to do and, and see and accomplish what they ran for in the first place. So there was a lot more vigorous discussion towards uh, the end of my time as a minister. And that's not just around the cabinet table, but generally um, with public servants and with caucus colleagues across party lines. Was that just because the election is starting to come up or was that the SNC? Was there was there a point at which the relationship started to shift for you? 
I wouldn't say that there was any specific point in time. I would just say that I think the leadership style changed over time. Yeah, that's interesting because I think earlier on you could see some of your fingerprints on legislation. I mean, whether whether it was cannabis, medical assistance, and dying, it, it did actually feel like it was almost a collaboration between public safety, which is you know, more conservative, between health, which would be a little bit more you know forward thinking, between justice, which has to kind of balance the practical considerations. You know, it actually kind of looked like it was this evidence based policy that the government kept talking about. At some point, did political reality just start to loom larger? Did you start to get the sense that sort of the the authority that a lot of the ministers had was sort of clipped in favor of more power for the PMO or the prime minister? Or or was it some sort of combination thereof? Well, I, I mean, having never been elected and uh, uh, recognized we're going into an election, of course, the closer we got to the election, and this wasn't necessarily within the last six months, but... Um, I think there was a level of consciousness among some people around that table that there was going to be an election and to ensure that what was done uh, was done to hold on to power. And I understand that. And maybe this speaks to having many new ministers around the cabinet table, but speaking for myself, I believe that, of course, it's important to get elected, but I do not believe that one compromises good public policy and good laws for political expediency. And I think that there was a diversity of opinion around that particular point. So do you think that as you got closer to the election, that the leadership structure got more centralized and top down? We're running as independents. And one of the major reasons why is to move beyond the partisan nature of politics. There's nothing wrong necessarily with political parties. It's what political parties have become. And whether it's this government, which is true of this government and previous governments, I experienced a centralization of power wherein individuals who are unelected or interest were having a great deal to do with the direction of policy decisions and choices that the government made. Jane, you were the health minister. You were responsible for kind of dealing with, you know, one of the most serious health epidemics we've seen in this country in decades, which is the opioid crisis. It certainly felt like you were taking some big steps. Did you have the freedom to take the steps that you believe were necessary? I feel like we were able to make really good progress on a number of issues. I was really proud of Bill C-37 that basically reintroduced harm reduction into the pillars of drug policy uh, and in doing so also opened up the possibility for supervised consumption sites to be approved much more easily. And I think that really was a, a shift in the federal approach to drug policy. I was super proud to be part of changing the regulations so that people could get access to safe supply through access to prescription heroin, for example, and then eventually change the regulations so that it could be imported much more easily. I will not say that all of that was easy. So on the prescription heroin piece, which we would have had to do anyways, because there was a pending legal case that the government would have lost. And so, you know, Surprise! That was surprisingly difficult to convince um, political staff of the fact that that had to happen. And I knew it had to happen and it makes absolute sense that it had to happen. I, so I think then we needed, you know, I had hoped to push um, things e even further in an evidence-based way. I think there are fantastic international models that we need to look to. I had the opportunity to visit both Portugal and Switzerland, which I think uh, put forth the two best broad policies um, that I think will be part of the solution to the opioid uh, overdose uh, epidemic. Um, as we get 
I think it would be fair to say the further you push, the more anxious uh, political staff get. Right, because I, mean, I, I remember being part of a team that asked the prime minister directly, you know, there are harm reduction advocates saying that decriminalization is really the only sensible next step forward to stop this. And he kind of swatted it away out of hand. Did that conversation come up around the cabinet table? So um, I obviously can't share with you the conversations around the cabinet table. I will tell you that decriminalization is not popular when you poll it in the Canadian public. And I think the reason for that is that people don't understand it. I think one of the things you have to do to be able to introduce evidence-based policy is explain it in ways and words that don't frighten people. So, you know, around that issue, you look to what Portugal has done in terms of a health-centered approach to the use of drugs. Mm -hmm. And when people are found in possession of small amounts of drugs, um, rather than charging them, they are asked to present themselves before a panel that includes a doctor, a lawyer, and a social worker. That is decriminalization, but it's not using the scary word. And that actually saves people's lives and gets people onto a track where they will be able to either find a way to use safely or find a way to address the drivers of, of dependency that are in their lives. So we need to figure out, politicians I think need to figure out how to have those conversations in with Canadians in a way that will allow us to be able to introduce evidence-based policy in a politically palatable way. Did you hear that a lot? The idea that this doesn't poll well, therefore it's off the shelf? I mean, I'll say this. There was, and I imagine always has been, a lot of polling that goes into what political parties do. There was a lot of polling around specific issues. And I mean, not discarding polling as being useful. It's, it's um, I suspect, useful in the sense to get general opinion on specific issues and where to go. But when polling becomes a factor or the factor in determining what you do on a particular issue of public importance, then that becomes problematic. Polling can't substitute for good public policy. Jenny, I really want to get into some of the Indigenous rights framework stuff, um, because I know it's been in the news and I know it was an issue that was near and dear to your heart. But, you know, for our audience members who maybe haven't been following this, can you just give us like a very brief Coles Notes version of that framework and why it was important? Coles Notes version as best I can. Indigenous peoples in this country are recognized in Section 35 of the Constitution, their rights their treaty rights. But the recognition of those rights uh, dating back to the early 1980s have never been given expression or the freedom uh, for Indigenous peoples to take their rightful place and rebuild their communities based on those rights. Very different from the Charter of Rights and Freedoms as an example, and we can look at them in parallel. What the Indigenous rights framework uh, is, and I still fundamentally am committed to achieving this, and this is what Indigenous communities have been asking for for decades, is to create the space in this country based on the recognition of Indigenous rights to finish the unfinished business of confederation so that Indigenous peoples, based on their inherent rights, not rights that are given to them by a particular order of government, that they can rebuild their communities, that they can rebuild their nations and their institutions of government and essentially be self-determining, not being dictated to if you're First Nations through the federal piece of legislation called the Indian Act. So my understanding is that this has come, um, the, the Liberal government has addressed this rights framework through two different pieces of legislation so far, one dealing with Indigenous child welfare and the other with Indigenous languages. Is that correct? Is my understanding correct? 
I would love to get into having a conversation about the language and, and the child welfare legislation. Good steps, but uh, on a fundamental basis, there is no rights recognition in those two pieces of mm. legislation. And that's a conversation that has to, to happen. And I look back to, and I would encourage people to, to listen to what the Prime Minister said in the House of Commons on February the 14th of 2018, where he spoke about rights recognition rights, um, and this is what is contained within the child welfare legislation, and again, it's a positive step, but rights um, aren't provided or pervade from one government to somebody through agreement, and that's what's contained within the child welfare legislation. We need to set the foundation based in a framework where language, culture, education, um, core institutions of government in Indigenous communities can be rebuilt. And we don't have that framework and we don't have that mechanism right now. Over the last couple of days, there's been protests around the, you know, the Indigenous framework legislation. There has been serious problems raised about it over the last year. There's been opposition to the idea that a lot of the funding for child welfare programs still goes through the provinces. Of course, January Indigenous Services, when a lot of this was being written up. Did you foresee some of these problems, some of these you know, sticking points? And I guess, why did the government forge ahead on legislation that has proved to be so unpopular, especially considering the prime minister has said repeatedly, this is his most important file, and he wants to do all of this in collaboration with First Nations? Well, I can speak briefly to the legislation on child welfare, which I had uh, the privilege of leading along for uh, about 16 months when I was minister there. Uh, it was adapted a little further after I left the portfolio and was tabled after uh, I left by another minister. It's not a perfect piece of legislation. I think that's clear. However, I do think it's positive and I do think it will make a difference. And I think even having the conversation around it has actually made a difference. I was appalled by what I learned as Indigenous Services Minister as to what's going on and the continual horrific trauma that we're causing to First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples by continuing to to remove children from their families for reasons of poverty, for reasons of inadequate housing, and for all sorts of other completely unacceptable reasons why we should tear families apart. And our country should know better. We've, you know, we already have caused generations worth of of trauma and pain and adverse outcomes as a result of residential schools, and we're doing we're continuing that through the overapprehension of Indigenous kids. So I think that even talking about that has made a difference. I, I literally wanted to make social workers and healthcare workers think twice before they signed the paperwork and called in the agencies to take kids away and try to find ways to push for preventing those uh, removals of children. Uh, we were able to get some funding largely pushed by the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal to say that we will pay for the prevention of apprehension. So I think all, there have been positive steps. But like Jody says, the bill, in part because it wasn't undergirded by the entire rights framework um, as was initially envisioned, the bill is not as strong as it could be for that. And I think the other thing that we hear most loudly, um, particularly from First Nations, Inuit and Métis, is that it doesn't come with statutory funding. And all the evidence points to the fact that if we find ways to prevent taking kids away from their home, that we will ultimately have positive impacts in terms of less missing persons, less suicide, homicide, problematic substance use, incarceration, all of the other things that roll out after you take people away from their families. 
Jody, I just want to ask one very quick follow-up question on this, and that is, in the midst of the SNC scandal during uh, Michael Wernick's second round of testimony, he made, I mean, uh, Robert Hiltz made mention of this, and I didn't quite clue to it until he wrote about it, but it sounded like Wernick was almost threatening you in an oblique way about the Indigenous rights framework, saying as if all of this good work could just go away, essentially. Is that how you read that, or how did you hear that? I'm trying to think about exactly what he said, but I was, well, first of all, I was very surprised that issues around the rights framework, around the directive on Indigenous civil litigation were raised by Michael Wernick and his testimony and the motivations for doing that. I mean, I can't, uh, I don't know what they are, but I thought it was very suspect. Listen, like having me not around the cabinet table or as a minister. I'm not sure if they were trying to drive a wedge in there or to maintain support among Indigenous peoples. Um, But I will say that uh, Indigenous communities right across the country are fundamentally committed to transforming the relationship between and among themselves and other orders of government to create the transformative change that needs to occur through rights recognition. You said drive a wedge there. What do you mean drive a wedge? What do you mean by drive a wedge? Well, I I mean that there was a lot of discussion throughout the SNC months and my no longer being a minister to being ejected from caucus, but particularly me no longer being a minister. There was a lot of people that commented about reconciliation and how reconciliation is now challenged or that the prospect of achieving reconciliation is dead. I think that um, I... As a minister of the crown, as the first indigenous minister that was the attorney general, uh, represented something for indigenous communities. And there was a significant, and this is not everybody, of course, um, disappointment that I was no longer in that position. But I would say that, and, and actually the minister of the crown said, that reconciliation isn't just about one person or isn't dependent on one person. What I was trying to say was that indigenous communities are not going to Uh, stop in terms of their advocacy, in terms of their resiliency to create the space where there is rights recognition. Do you think think by Michael Wernick bringing that up during the SNC scandal that he was trying to drive a wedge between you and other Indigenous communities on the reconciliation file? I don't like again, I, I don't know what his motivations were for that. What I do know is throughout that process, um, since I was uh, shuffled um, out of my position as the attorney general through to including my testimony and beyond, there seemed to be a direct attempt to undermine what I had done. Um, I mean, I always say that there was a smear campaign out there to talk about uh, things that I did or didn't do. So I'm not saying that that's what Wernick was doing, but people were um, creating issues that weren't necessarily pertinent to the issue at hand in terms of the testimony around SNC. I was very surprised that the issue around Indigenous peoples and the directive and the rights recognition came up. I want to come back to that that smear campaign in a minute. I want to talk a little bit more about what life was like in caucus, especially after being booted from from cabinet. But just briefly, you know, on your time as justice minister, you mentioned uh, the indigenous litigation framework. And of course, you had a uh, hallmark piece of legislation in C-76, which we've talked about on the show before. A lot of the big promises that existed in liberal platform, a lot of the things that sort of were talked about in the early days of the liberal government, reducing incarceration rates, um, especially for indigenous peoples, reducing mandatory minimums, if not eliminating them in a lot of cases, you know, fundamentally changing our justice system. 
that didn't really happen. Looking back on the three years you sat as justice minister, are you happy with those three years? I'm proud of the work that we did in those three years, um, what we were able to accomplish. I have a level of anxiety right now about, and I think you were speaking about the the justice reform bill, C-75. Oh, I got the, uh, the number. Yeah, that's okay. Um, C-75 is, yeah. is currently in the Senate, as is um, a family law reform bill that I'm incredibly proud of. C-78 is still in the Senate. The anxiety I have is that it's not going to get passed because it will fundamentally assist in transforming the justice system, but also family law and, and uh, divorce, et cetera. So I, I'm very hopeful that those move forward. As justice minister, I was determined to achieve what was in my mandate letter and wanted things to move more quickly than they did fundamental to the transformation in the justice system. Um, and we all know that Indigenous peoples are overrepresented in, in that system, is the transformation in the relationship, looking at rights recognition and how, as a federal government, we interact with Indigenous peoples. That didn't happen in terms of specifically justice. I know, and you mentioned mandatory minimum penalties, I have been... Um, publicly an advocate from the day I, st I decided to run and even before that, that we need to look at mandatory minimum penalties. There are, of course, some penalties that I believe should still be in place for the most serious of crimes, but uh, mandatory minimum penalties, as evidence has shown, contribute to the increased numbers of incarceration. And again, I've said that judges who are confronted with an individual that's in front of them that they have to sentence should have the freedom and the discretion to provide a sentence that is appropriate for the individual and the circumstances that an individual has lived with in their lived experience. So for both of you, there was a lot of things in the platform that never came to fruition or didn't come to fruition in kind of the way that it was built. You know, this party came to power on a promise of transformational change, real change, I think was the thing I heard approximately 8 million times in that campaign. In a lot of cases, the delivery wasn't there. And yet you see the Liberal caucus, even when you two were both you know, out of cabinet but in the caucus, still kind of standing behind leader. There was really no questioning of the fact that the platform they ran on didn't really, you know, roll out in the way that it was it was built. Why has there been this level of sort of, I'll call it cultish behavior in the Liberal Party? It's also true in the other parties as well. You know, a lot of the things you're saying now, you weren't saying as Liberal MPs. You're now only saying as independent MPs. Why is that? Well, it's a great question, and it kind of you know leads into sort of where we're at now, and that both of us have announced this week that we will be running as independent MPs. I think the other interesting place to look to answer your question is some of the work that Samara has done, and some of your listeners may be familiar with the tragedy in the Commons book and the work that's gone on since then by Samara that shows that it's only on exit interviews that you actually get the information mm -hmm. as to the frustrations and challenges that members of parliament face uh, while they're here because there is a, a culture of, you know, closing ranks. And to a certain extent, that's necessary. And there obviously has to be solidarity in cabinet and there has to be a measure of loyalty within caucus. But at the same time, caucus by design is intended for those members of parliament to represent their constituents and to hold the government to account, even the caucus that is the same party as the governing party. And that doesn't necessarily happen. Jane, what's it like to be on the other side of that closing of ranks? 
I see some of the vitriol that gets directed at you online now from staunch liberal partisans. You know, the liberal party writ large has closed ranks against you. You've been Mm. subject to smear campaigns. I mean, the finance minister suggested that you only left cabinet because your, your buddy Jody left cabinet. I mean, like you are now on the other side of that partisan tribal tightness. And, you know, what's it like to go from being inside that tent to outside of it? What's it like being difficult women? (laughs) Um, You know, it makes me sad for Canada to have seen what I've seen in terms of what that looks like on, on the other side. I will be frank, as a liberal MP, experienced a certain amount of anger and attacks from other parties online, from trolls and bots, etc. And obviously being a liberal and doing things that made liberals proud, you know, you only heard nice things from the, the, the liberal trolls. And I, it was a shocking for me to realize after what happened that those same people that a month ago were saying you're the best thing in the world and, you know, you're just like this smart, fantastic politician, those very same people online were saying the worst things to the point that for your own mental wellness, you have to mute those voices because they were the nastiest of all. And it made me realize something that I hadn't understood is that, you know, I still love and respect my liberal colleagues. I wish the very best for them. And I want good people from all parties to to be part of making this country better. But there are some nasty, hateful people out there that do not contribute to how we're going to solve the big challenges our country is facing. And if we could find a way to help those people understand that that kind of anger and vitriol is completely destructive, then it would be uh, it would be good to help us move forward. And, and Jody, of course, you know you, you mentioned the smear campaign earlier. You were subject to these suggestions that you were horribly difficult on your staff, that you were kind of in it for yourself. That this was your uh, prophecy to become prime minister, and and all of these things. What was it like to be on that end? And uh, you know, and, and it's interesting because I also heard a lot of columnists and sort of pundits and in, in, in Ottawa bigwig type saying. Yeah, this is politics. What did you expect? This is what happens. First of all, through the period of time that I seem to be on the front pages of the paper was was really hard on my mother. (laughs) Um, But in terms of difficult or people saying that I'm difficult or really difficult, if difficult, the definition of difficult is that I advocated strongly for the positions um, that I believed in or the issues that I wanted um, addressed in a different way then I guess by that definition, I was difficult. Um, I came from a world where you have vigorous debates and you speak your mind, you speak about what you want to see. And and, um, from that comes discussion and, and you try and create some level of consensus. So I was always one to sit around um, the cabinet table and other tables and uh, advocate for my mandate letter from the prime minister to the issues that I that I ran on. So I would continue to do that in a new way. One of your staffers is in the room. Blink three times. If she's, <laughs> just kidding. Let's also be totally fair, guys. It's also abundantly obvious that the entire SNC scandal is a fake scandal that you all made up <laughs> in order to depose the prime minister, install oh. Andrew Scheer as leader, and then eventually uh, run as a liberal leader and prime minister. That's so, right. I mean, like, you and can't entirely ama- blame them. The amazing thing, and, and, and I know Jane and I have had this conversation, and I've had this conversation with a lot of other people, is that that is the assumption, or it seems to be the go-to position, of course. Of course, it was something to do with power. You had aspirations to be the prime minister. This is why this whole SNC reality happened. 
fact is it became a public story when the, it was published in the Globe and Mail. And um, the idea of having somebody, uh, in, in my case, as the attorney general, want to ensure that the truth is out there, wanting to do the best job that you can and do what you knew to be right, having people not understand or believe that that was the only reason or motivation behind your actions seems to be something that is very foreign or a concept people can't wrap their minds around because that Jody, is exactly who, what it was. Who, who leaked but Jody, the story? Who leaked it? Do, you, do you know? Do you know who leaked the SNC-Lavalin story? I have absolutely no idea who leaked the SNC-Lavalin story. Hmm. Let me ask both of you. You know, you two have been in the I think a remarkably unique position. I don't think there can be many other MPs who can say they went from in their first term going straight into cabinet, resigning from cabinet on a matter of principle, being fired from caucus for not supporting dear leader and running as independents. Given all of that, I mean, what would you say about how the system works? You know, there are people out there who I think quite rightly say, listen, you know, cabinet solidarity exists for a reason. Our cabinet system is set up this way. Of course, they couldn't remain in cabinet given the intransigence between them and the prime minister on these matters of principle. I mean, do you agree with that? And just having gone through that, that whole rigmarole, what do you think needs to change, if anything, about this whole structure? I hesitate a little bit to say this, but um, I've said it to lots of colleagues in the House. The parliamentary system, and at least the House of Commons and the members of Parliament side, is the most dysfunctional place I've ever worked in my life. And I've worked quite a few places. So there is a considerable amount of room for improvement and uh, there are different ways that that should happen. You know, we've talked a lot this week about parties and the power of parties, the role of leadership, the ability of members of parliament to be able to hold the government to account or to periodically challenge the direction of a particular policy to have their voices heard. Um, obviously, this leads into the whole issue of electoral reform, for example, that would really change the way the Canadian parliamentary system works. So there is work to do here. And I, you know, people, I think, are very skeptical about what uh, independent members of parliament might be able to do in that. But until we challenge the system and say, you know, can one get elected as an independent member of parliament? Can those independent members of parliament work with other independent partisans across party lines? Then, you know, it'll never get better. I fundamentally believe it's possible. We have massive challenges we're facing as a country. I think climate change is probably on the top of the list. We will not address climate change if we can't stop arguing with one another, if we can't find a way to uphold the best ideas and um, improve the ideas that aren't so good. That has to be a cross-partisan project, the likes of which Canada hasn't seen since wartime, perhaps. Jane, I want to talk about, you know, the role of independence. We want to get there. But I have to stop you there because you just said, like, Parliament was the most dysfunctional place you've ever worked. I've worked in newsrooms. So my, like, bar for dysfunction <laughs> is pretty goddamn high. What no, do you but, mean by dysfunctional? Well, I mean, even crazy things, you know, like the way that you're constantly interrupted with votes. So there's a whole lot of votes that are called procedural votes, and they happen Almost every day now, <laughs> there are procedural votes. And they're often things that are really used by both government and opposition to throw sand in the tires of the system. So, um, and it'll be, you know, there'll be a motion put forward to the House that says, you know, 
this certain member moves that the House do now proceed with the orders of the day. Well, that may seem like a simple enough thing. But what ends up happening when that takes place is that 338 people who were sent here to do some really hard work by their constituents have to stop what they're doing, have to get themselves on over to the House of Commons, sit there. Everybody stands up and votes that the House do now or don't proceed with the orders of the day according to how you happen to feel at that particular moment. So that's disrupting already there at least an hour of 338 people's time. But it's also disrupting every guest that has come to Parliament Hill to present themselves as a, a to testify at committee and have rearranged their lives to be there on that particular day. Those things drive me mad. <laughs> and there are all kinds of other stories of things like that that happen here that do not make this an effective functional workplace. Jody, you want to take a swing at that? I mean, is it dysfunctional? Well, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that the system is completely broken, but it, it's kind of sick. And what I've heard from people right across the country is that they're kind of fed up with the same how politics has always been done. And I think, and this is not to sound cliche, but I think diversity of opinion is fundamentally important, both internally to a party and externally between and among parties. Um, I do not believe it is an appropriate place or necessarily a good place to make good laws and policies to have a caucus under a leader wherein all of caucus has the same views or is encouraged to be an echo chamber. You don't get good decisions or solutions that way. There should be a diversity of opinion. Um, there should be different approaches. And then we seek to reconcile those to the best place we can. That's the same within the Liberal Party, as I'm sure it's in other parties. And then at the end of the day, and this is moving beyond the partisanship nature and improving what is a, a bit of a sick system, is to actually figure out how you can work with other parties. I mean, we're not ideologically going to agree on everything, but there are certain issues, as Jane says, that need to be addressed across party lines. And how do we get to that place? Removing the toxicity is, is something that would fundamentally improve the nature of the parliamentary system or how decisions are made or how concrete ideas and expertise that all members of parliament bring, whatever that is, isn't compartmentalized out of the decision-making process. I think that that contributes to the dysfunction of how decisions are made and the frustration that people have. Let me, let me ask you, you know, the prime minister, when he appointed his first cabinet, said, I'm bringing together this group of people of diverse backgrounds who will bring these diverse experiences. And you and many others were, were supposed to be emblematic of that. Was that a false promise in the end? It, was it sort of a fig leaf for the prime minister to put indigenous voices, you know, uh, LGBTQ voices, female voices at the table and then, I mean, disagree or agree with this, not give them the, the leeway or the, the platform or the ability to fully actually use their experiences around the cabinet table and in government? I mean, be careful what you ask for because you might actually get it. I mean, I'll speak for myself. I, I got involved in politics because I actually believed that doing politics differently would transform how decisions are made and would transform and enable us to achieve what we wanted to achieve in a better way. I come from an indigenous world where we function by way of consensus. That doesn't mean that everybody agrees, but um, we have vigorous debates and we come up with solutions. We didn't have political parties. Our core objective was to, and always is, to ultimately improve the quality of life for people. And I came to Ottawa in part, or in the most part, to create that space for Indigenous peoples to be self-determining. And what I learned was that there's a lot 
that this place can learn from how my community and our nations have functioned for millennia to ensure survival and ensure that decisions stand the test of time, as opposed to be in a fishtail or a four-year election cycle. We're not going to address issues of climate change that way. So even if both of you are elected, even if, you know, Selena Cesar Chavez and a whole bunch of others end up running as independents and you have this small you know, cabal of independents over in the corner, that's not going to turn the House of Commons into the none of it legislature, which, of course, is nonpartisan. And I think many have argued uh, you're, you're just going to elect Andrew Scheer. Is running enough? I mean, does there have to be structural reforms that come from somewhere else? I mean, you know, what comes next? So you win or you lose. You know, what comes next? Well, I think there will be opportunities to work with a range of people to make this place better. I mean, it's this paradox that, you know, I'm running now as an independent. And on one hand, people think that means that you're going to strike out and, you know, as a solo uh, advocate, thinking that you're going to accomplish things as one person. It's quite the opposite. What independence gives is the freedom to collaborate, to work with others. And uh, I've seen that already. I mean, I've had the best conversations of four years in the last two months because sitting up in our little corner with the independents, it's safe for people to come and sit down. And, uh, you know, until Elizabeth May came a couple of days ago and occupied the chair beside me, I had an empty chair beside me. Which, of course, I'm very happy to have Elizabeth there now. But, you know, people from all parties would come and you know, sit down beside me and talk about things. You know, we've had great conversations with Michael Chong uh, about democratic reform, and I would love to work with him on that. We've had great conversations on those topics with liberal members of parliament as well. You know, I think as an independent member of parliament and as a candidate right now, I'm going to spend the next four and a half months talking to as many people as I can in my riding to find out what are their priorities and if elected, what they want me to come here and fight for. And I think I, my sense is that we will land on two or three topics that they want me to champion on their behalf. That's the way this place is actually intended to work. Hopefully they know my track record that if I have been given a mandate by the people of Markham Stouffville to get stuff done, that I will get here and get that stuff done and figure out a way to make that happen with the people that want to be part of it. Why didn't you guys just run for the Greens? Well, <laughs> I think I can speak for Jane on this. We had uh, both together and individually very um, long conversations with Elizabeth. I mean, I see uh, the Green Party uh, in many of the issues that they address, particularly climate change, as being a, a natural ally. Personally, um, it was a difficult decision for me to get involved in federal politics in the first place, to join a political party for the first time. I mean, I align myself with the values and the principles of that the Liberal Party espouses around equality and justice and inclusion. That's still who I am, but I'm not necessarily a partisan. And, and trying to put myself, if I'm a square peg into a round hole, was difficult for me. Um, and I wanted to be and will continue to be true to who I am. And uh, I'm pleased with the situation that I'm in in terms of running as an independent. But running as an independent, as Jane says, gives you the freedom to work with everybody, to seek to try and build bridges. And I know that I will closely work with Elizabeth May and, and members of parliament uh, from across uh, the political divide. Thank you both so much for coming in. I got one last question and then I will release you back into the wild. <laughs> the wilds of Ottawa. Who do you want to be prime minister? If you're going to pick, and I think you should just strike out on a limb and, and pick one, 
Who do you think is going to end up being prime minister? And if it's not who you want, are you going to have any regrets about running? Well, I think uh, it's probably not smart for politicians to speculate of about these things. Smart, but, you're, but you should do it anyway. <laughs> but you're going to. I also really believe in answering uh, journalists' questions. So I believe that Justin Trudeau will be the prime minister of the next government. I think the question remains whether it will be a, a majority or a minority government. Um, you know, I think Wait, that's that. No, that's a prediction. That's not the question. The who question is, who do you want to be prime minister? Uh, I would be happy if that were the case. Mm. You know, I, I ran as a liberal. Jody ran as a liberal in the last government. So obviously we're supportive of liberal policies on the whole. I think it's fair to say that there are advantages of minority governments because it forces people to work together. And I think working together is always good. I My uh, favorite prime minister was Lester Pearson, mm. who in an, a minority government accomplished uh, more in five years than most uh, prime ministers accomplished in much longer terms. And uh, so we'll see how mm. things I'm Roll sure you'd both be happy to hold the balance of power. <laughs> well, a good uh, many good laws and public policies is driven from uh, has been driven from minority situations. So uh, that's not necessarily bad for democracy. That's not necessarily bad for conversations that we can have around democratic reform. I think it would be uh, um, an exciting uh, place to be, where, as Jane says, parties need to work together. Well, who would you want to be prime minister? Are you going to throw me a curveball and say, you know? Elizabeth Jung, May. <laughs> Singh. Jung Andrew Shear. <laughs> I, I, uh, Justin Link. I don't. I don't want uh, Andrew Shear to be the prime minister, as as Jane said. I. I mean, I hold liberal values. Um, I think ultimately, um, maybe this is a prediction, but uh, I want somebody that's progressive, um, that espouses progressive views, that holds those values. The electorate will decide, but I uh, suspect that uh, the current prime minister will remain as such potentially in a minority situation. Jody Wilson-Rabel, Jane Philpott, thanks so much. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. Well, that's it for Oppo. We'll be back again in two weeks. Commons continues to look at Canada's oil industry next week. You can get in touch with us at oppo at canadalandshow.com or find us on Twitter and Facebook at oppocast to let us know what you think. Or if you're a sitting MP or minister, maybe you can come on the show as well. Uh, maybe we'll see if you're interesting enough. This episode was produced by David Crosby for Canada Land Media. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Theme music by Nathan Burley. I have the last word this week, and that word is dysfunctional. Thank <laughs> you.